Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Baha'u'llah or or Balatacha, you see it sometimes pronounced. Yes, all depends on how you do the the uh, vowels or lack thereof. So this covers Numbers chapter eight verse through twelve, and uh, we also picked up the companion passage there in John chapter six. Now, one of the things like we have this uh, artist rendition of this picture of the, the the tribes that are camped around the tabernacle with at the base of the mountain and it's it's kind of a very interesting thought picture of what is actually going on here and it's something that we talked about when we were going through the construction of the tabernacle itself and we mentioned it just a, a couple of tourist cycles back and talking about what role the Mishkan serves. And we saw in this particular passage that each of the tribes are going out in succession. And you notice that the items of the tabernacle are kind of interspersed between the tribes. And so it's giving you a picture that the camp, the camp of Israel has the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, right smack dab in the middle of it. And the pieces of it are traveling in the midst of the people as they go along with the ark is out in front. The ark is leading the people out. And what is the ark? That is the place, the throne of where the Lord's presence is resting there in the tabernacle. It says that he's enthroned uh, above the mercy seat, above, above that kaparet, the covering that is on the Ark of the Covenant. So, and yeah, also called the Ark of the Testimony. So in one of these things that we can look at in just an overview of this particular passage of Numbers 8 through 12, we see in Numbers 8 is talking about raising up the menorah, which is where we get the, the title for this particular section, when you raise up, or Baha Alotecha, when you raise up the menorah, and also about washing of the priests and get, getting them ready for service, getting them prepared for entering service. And Numbers chapter 9 talks about the Pesach and also about not only preparing and remembering the Pesach for a memorial for this second anniversary, but also about moving out from the mountain, which should make you start thinking, well, what was, what was the Pesach about? It was about delivering you from the house of bondage out to the mountain. And now with this memorial, you are now moving out from the mountain going to the land. So it's a very interesting bridge that's going there and delivering you, moving out from where you were at before and taking you in somewhere else. In Numbers chapter 10, you've got the talking about the two silver trumpets and then the actual leaving of the mountain. You are giving the signals for how they were going to be going out and then leaving the mountain. And then Numbers 11 and 12 is the first description of the people complaining, and we're going to be seeing a lot of complaining as the chapters roll along here in the book of Numbers or Bimidbar as they're in the wilderness. And you see also the anointing of these 70 elders, these 70 elders who would be shouldering the load. Also with the plague of quail and Aharon and Miriam coveting Moshe's prophecy, then finally leading out with Miriam being punished with, pro with the leprosy here, which related to the challenge of Moshe. Now, you're like thinking, well, this is an incredible grab bag of stuff. Is this 
just happen to be kind of just randomly thrown together kind of stuff. Well, in essence, what we're going to see, and we'll, we'll focus on that a little bit more, but here's just a preview of where we're going to be going with this as we move along. But really, over in, um, in Numbers chapter 11, in Numbers chapter 11, where you're talking about with the complaining and such, you start seeing a, a revelation of something that is really a theme. If you were to say, what is the thread that's kind of going through this entire passage and all these seemingly um, disparate things of trumpets, what does that have to do with Passover? And what does that have to do with the counting of the tribes and the complaining and this and that and the other? And it can really just be down to two things, Ruach and Asaf, or to gather. Asaf means to gather. That's what's translated to gather in. And it's used a lot in this particular passage in Numbers 8 through 12. And a lot in Numbers chapter 11 with the complaining. And also, ruach, which it can be translated either wind or spirit. I mean, just think about the wind or the spirit that is blowing through this particular passage, even in Numbers 10 with the trumpets. The wind blows through the trumpet to make the sound. And who is wielding those trumpets? The priests are holding the trumpets. And what are the priests supposed to do? They're supposed to be ones that are in closest contact with God and being his direct ministers. So they then, close contact with God, God is, in a sense, blowing through them to signal, hey, the people need to get moving and do stuff. And thus you're seeing the tribes moving around in the midst of this and gathering you can either be gathered for good or gathered for bad. Gathered for good or gathered for bad and grumbling, complaining, etc., etc., etc. And worse off, you could be the euphemism, or you could say the euphemistic idiom in Hebrew is they were gathered to their people. Now, what does that mean? Dead. You don't want to be gathered to your people. And in fact, we see that Miriam is described in very kind of uh, unpleasant as what her condition was like. And she was basically said, you were, look like you are a stillborn child. You look like you're dead, the walking dead. And then we've seen that when we were going through in descriptions in Leviticus about tetzarat and the what's called leprosy, that... This is, in a sense, you are walking dead. You are gathered. You're being gathered to the people before you've been gathered to the people. So you've been gathered, meaning you're gathered now outside of the camp before you are gathered into the grave with everybody else. So then you see at the end that she has to be gathered back into the people before they can leave. They are not going to leave until she is gathered back in at the end of the seven days. So, and we see a lot of the cases of, well, where does the, the manna comes from? They have to go out and they have to gather it. They have to go out in Asaf every six, all those six days. We got twice the amount on the sixth day. Gather all that in. And they had to gather the quail and the, and the, the quail was gathered by the wind and then blown in to the camp and dumped in the midst of it. So one of the reasons why we read John chapter 6 along with that is now you start to see a lot of what that eat my flesh and drink my blood is talking all about and about the, the bread that came down from heaven. So with all that, well, Take a look back at uh, just a couple of highlights before we move on further. Uh, it was great because this this particular year we actually had a chance to celebrate a second Pesach. We got to celebrate that with someone who was on a journey and not able to participate with Passover. So that was kind of a fun thing to go through and celebrate that. But just think about when you think of this theme of being gathered into your people. 
So thus, the people who are not able to be as a part of this Passover, this being able to be delivered out of the land. It is so important to memorialize this that even if you must miss it because of something we're going to talk about in just a minute, because of this, um, the ability, we remember we were going through Leviticus and it says between clean, unclean, tahor, tame, it can be best understood as fit to approach the presence of God, unfit to approach the presence of God. So if you were unfit to approach the presence of God for a reason that may be completely out of your control, you know, contact with the dead body, it may just have been, that's the way life is. But the symbols of what's going on with the symbol of, hey, stay away from death is so important that we're saying both the staying away from a dead body and your participation with Passover are so important that we're going to make an accommodation so you can be gathered in to the people of God together with everybody else, together with that. So um, there, there is some building thought among some theologians that that may have been where you get the picture of what came to be known as uh, communion or the Eucharist came in through that particular thing in that because there was the second Passover, so thus you could say outside of Passover time, which is what those passages like 1 Corinthians 15, etc., talks about, that that is what it's referring to with as often as you get together. So that's one idea. It's still kind of gelling, but in the sense that this is a very important point because we talk about, well, why is Passover so important? And we just are went through Passover season. We went through all of the 50 days of Pentecost of Shavuot, have now gone out the other side of Shavuot of Pentecost, and are now looking out toward our next one coming up, or Yom Tura, uh, Rosh Hashanah, the, the Feast of Trumpets coming up, which is right about trumpets. But one of the themes that you see in there about Passover is that connected to both ends of this. We talked about this during Passover and Shavuot time. Both ends, Shavuot and Passover, are connected to each other. They are both parts of the same thing. Even like when we read on the day of Shavuot itself in Numbers, uh, Acts chapter 1, that you see that this part of Passover and the counting of the days up to Pentecost is hugely important so that you see that like on the 40th day of this count is where Yeshua was saying, hey, he is taken up and he's saying, wait, wait until the Spirit of God comes upon you with power. Uh, yes, Alex, uh, go ahead. I was uh, refreshed to read uh, St. Polycarp, one oh, of the yes. very early saints mm -hmm. of one or 200 CE. Yeah. He, was uh, a, he was a quarto deciminer. <laughs> well, I know they burn him alive. Yes. But it's so nice to hear him say the great Sabbath and the last Passover. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, this is before... And we hear this all the time these days. Yeah. Change the words. Yeah. Change the meeting. Well, with no last supper. It was the last Passover. Yeah. And it was a great Sabbath. Yeah, in, indeed. Time. And uh, Polycarp was one of those that was uh, what they call the quarto decimen, he, which means 14th. He was one that said, hey, if you're going to be talking about the celebration of the death and resurrection, it's got to be tied to the 14th day of the first month. Just don't float it whenever related to a given first day of the week. It is tied to it because it has a very important tie back to the original Passover. And the great Passover is tied to the first Passover. So, yes. And this, this particular observation here is something that is good to uh, remind our brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah about. And this particular item is from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Now, I can guarantee you any pastor worth his salt is going to have this in his library. 
because this is put out by Zondervan. It's the publishers of the NIV, the New International Version. So it's very, very common resource in there. And one of the things that it talks about is that this idea of grace and a spirit-led life is as much as part of the tabernacle and the temple times as it was for post-resurrection times. So here's this passage where it's reflecting on one of the things that we just read about here today. Uh, This quote here starts out, the best way to think of the notion of uncleanness is as a teaching device to remind the people of Israel of the holiness of God. The idea that any person at all might have the effrontery to dare to approach the presence of the Lord is audacious in and of itself. Only by his grace may anyone come before him to worship. By developing a concept of ritual purity and external symbol, the notion of internal purity might be presented. Ever in the Bible, the notions of external symbols are representative of internal realities. Only the obdurate, which is a big 50-cent word, which means, I got the definition here for you, it's stubborn in refusing to change one's opinion. So only the obdurate would miss the point here. In our Lord's confrontation with the Pharisees, the principal battle was not over the essential demands of God, but on the tendencies of the Pharisees had in focusing on external compliance without due attention to internal meaning. In our passage, talking about what we're reading here today, the recognition of ceremonial uncleanness on the part of some people and their consequent inability to participate in the activities of celebrative worship in the Passover speaks of their high level of compliance to the dictates of Torah and the keen desire they had to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, just like what we read there in uh, John chapter 4. So this here is, is something, this is uh, on the shelf of pretty much, pretty much guarantee any Christian pastor, uh, evangelical pastor, and probably a lot of liturgical ones as well. So it's one thing to note here, and specifically when it's talking about in our Lord's confrontations with the Pharisees, Sermon on the Mount. This is what this is referring to here. So we've talked about this time, in times before, when you go through the Sermon on the Mount and they use the term for it in theological circles, the six antitheses. You have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. It's positioned as, well, you have heard it said, meaning it's written in the Torah, but I tell you, meaning, okay, forget what you heard in the Torah. Now I'm going to tell you how it really is. Well, the essence of what this is is saying here and this is a note for pastors, is that the principal battle was not over the Torah, specifically just like what is written at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, or 17 through 20 even, is that, you know, do not think that I have come to change the law and the prophets. So, that's understood. That's understood. Uh, pastors have it there on their shelf, a key commentary telling them, hey, the issue that is present there in the Sermon on the Mount is not what the Torah says. It is what people said what the Torah says. That is what the problem was. And in turn of what was actually happening in the heart, the heart of the people, that is what the problem was. So when we are coming back here into our passage, and this particular passage is in Numbers chapter 9, so when we come back here and we look at this passage of the, the second chance Pesach, the idea is that the is so important to be a part of the family that is going out of the house of bondage and going to the land of freedom. It is so important to be gathered into that family and to travel with that family into the land of freedom that 
It's like you have to make the way open for it. You have that mercy for the things that will come up that you just cannot avoid. So we go on then to some of the other topics that we have here. Numbers chapter 9, just right after this passage of the second Passover, Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 23, is talking about, hey, the moving of the ark. Go when he says go. Stop when he says stop. You see the cloud start rising, pack up. When the cloud starts moving, get moving. When the cloud stops, all right, get ready to break camp or to make camp. So that brings a very interesting question up. The famous tagline by the, the Visitors Bureau is, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Meaning, go off to Vegas, whatever happens, then come home and whatever happened in Vegas, it's, it's uh, undisclosed happens in there. But what we, what we see here in this particular passage, one of the threads that's running through this, you know, remember, wind, spirit, and gathering together, gathering together is really, uh, no. <laughs> According to the testimonies of God, what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. No. Uh, in essence, we see here in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 12, and it says to me, he said to me, son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken this land. So it's like, ah, the Lord doesn't see what's going on here. And that's a thread that you see throughout the book of Ezekiel, is that the priesthood, remember, the people with, who are supposed to be wielding the trumpets to blow out the messages of warning to gather the people together, what are they actually doing? Scattering. Confusing. Just leading the people off a cliff. They led the people off a cliff to the point where not only one empire came in to lay waste, but two empires came in. Assyria came in, took away the northern empire, uh, the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, and then Babylon came in later and took out the southern tribes and took them away and destroyed the city and flattened the temple there at the particular process. So, yeah, same as it ever was. There's nothing really new under the sun. But you see that there can be two sides to this equation about what's done in darkness because we a very familiar passage to a lot of us in the body of Messiah, starting in John 3.16 and going through verse 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for god did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him he who believes in him is not judged he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of god this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So remember from the Sermon on the Mount, where it's talking about, you know, let your light shine before men so that what? People can give you a pat on the back, give you an award, maybe get a plaque, you know, get a picture in, in front of a magazine. Is that, is that what it says? So let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and praise you, right? No, oh, give you an award. No. So, <laughs> to what? Give glory to the one in heaven, where the source of all things come from. You know, get your priorities straight. Where does it actually come from? Where does the light of the world actually come from? 
So what you're seeing here is also a little glimpse into that <laughs> kind of seemingly comical phrase that we just read there in uh, Numbers chapter 12, that Moshe was the most humble man that has ever walked the face of the earth. So you're like, that seems like a strange thing to say, the humble man, that he's the most humble of all. Well, humble means what? We talk about this around Yom Kippur time, Day of Atonement time. Humble means what? Non-elevated. You are pushed down. You are pushed down. So one of the commandments for the Day of Atonement is to push yourself down, to make yourself low, which is why in Isaiah 58, where it's riffing on the Day of Atonement, and it's saying, hey, this is what a fast you that the Lord seeks. To do what? See those around you, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the, the foreigner. They are pushed down. What are you doing about that? Are you stepping on their neck? Or are you lifting them up? So that is a point of what is to be understood on the Day of Atonement. We push ourselves down to remember what? Yeshua, the one who covers, the one who covers the sins, the transgressions, the iniquities, the things that really make us low. To remember who is the one who covers over all that and gets it out of town, to be never remembered. And we see that, yes. We see that with the new covenant prophecy, Jeremiah 31, that these Iniquities will be forgiven, sent away, and remembered no more. So that is the point of the pushing ourselves down to humble yourselves, the Day of Atonement, to see what is our true situation, to really expose us to the light. And, you know, some of the practices of the recounting a long list of the sins that are typical to mankind is to remember, oh, maybe there are some dark corners in our lives. So kind of like what the psalmist was saying, hey, search me. Learn everything about me. And then what? Lead me on to the ways of everlasting. Because... You know, it's one of those things, I talked about this before, is when people are in recovery from any sort of substance or behavior or this or that or the other, what is one of the first things that you do? Well, first you recognize what? You have a problem. Then what is one of the next things you do? You take inventory. Yes, <laughs> it's sponsored basically so that you are not just a uh, left out there by yourself as a single thread, but rather, as it says in Proverbs, hey, one thread can be broken, one strand, but a threefold strand, or basically a rope, a twisted cord, is not easily broken. You're, you are stronger wrapped around each other. You are stronger wrapped around each other, gathered together, than you are just as lone wolves uh, scattered about without any source of strength. Yes. Because we see, we see what, what happens with the ones that are scattered about. Because we see later on as we read on with the nation of Amalek. And what was their favorite battle strategy? Strike from the rear. Look for the stragglers. Yes, don't fight at the strength. You fight at the weakness, which you might say is probably a good battle strategy to begin with, to probe defenses, to probe strength, or this or that. But to basically attack at the weak part, to go after those who are the most vulnerable. And... Same as it ever was, yes, we have seen it yet again that what do we have a problem with today? Attack against the most vulnerable among us. 
Yeah, the spirit of Amalek is alive and well going after those that are most vulnerable, going after the children yet again. Yes, it doesn't change throughout time. So from this, we say, yeah, what, rather than this, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No, that's, that's not reality. That's fantasy. Fantasy is that what happens over there, we think, oh, it's not known, it's not seen. No, but rather, we see that what we have revealed to us and we've seen in the book of Vayikra Leviticus, and now we're seeing especially in the book of Bemidbar and Numbers, that what happens at Sinai doesn't stay at Sinai. You don't just go to the mountain and, okay, you leave and there it is. It's whatever we experience over there, whoo, boy, that was scary. But it's up there on the mountain and it's not there around us anymore. No, the one who was up on the mountain is now hovering up over the tent and up over the entire congregation with the cloud. Uh, yes, Sean, go ahead. A little rabbit hole question since you got this picture up. I, w I just yes. was told um, the first entrance here was called the truth, then the way, and then going into the holies of holy was the life. Hmm. Well, that's a very interesting way to say it. Yeah, you could, yeah, you could say it that way. Yeah. Because that's when we, we were saying from the very beginning, the last chapters of Exodus going into Leviticus, is that really Leviticus is a story of how you get into the presence of the Lord. And that is a goal. I mean, yes, you see that you're seeing the presence of the ultimate other, the ultimate, we call that holiness, basically just means separate, set apart, set apart from the entire world. That one who created all things has made his presence here in a particular place. He chooses to be in a particular place to meet us. But we have to remember that this is just not like everything else this is not like the world around us so then we must be transformed to go into that presence i mean think about it we we see that all the time you've probably seen movies of people going into some biohazard facility and what do they do they put on the suits they put on the suits and then they go through the decontamination. They spray them down with all kinds of, uh, of antimicrobials and this and that. And then they go in and then they blow them down with air to get anything else off of them. And then they sometimes have to step through some sort of disinfectant liquid to get anything off their shoes. And then they go in and they're in a, their own bubble inside of this, this secure place. Why is that? Why is that? Yes, we have a suit that we're supposed to be put on. Yes. Yes. And that's actually the topic of our Haftarah, which we'll be getting at on next week around. But that Zechariah 2 through 4 passage there is talking about the new clothes that are put on the high priest. Yes. That's, we see Yeshua tells parables about this. The Apostle Paul speaks about this extensively about putting on the armor of God, which she just mentioned. But yes, the pole point of all of this, and just like what we saw in that common reference for pastors, is that the point of all of this stuff of clean and unclean, holy and not holy, is to say that the world in which we live in seems normal to all of us, but we don't know that there's any sort of problem. I mean, you... You see kind of similar things that happen in like a radiological disaster. Well, if you have a radiological disaster, uh, do you know what's happening? I mean, if, if no one reports on it, you might just think, man, I've been out in the sun for a long time. Why on earth am I getting these, these uh, skin rashes and stuff happening to me? You know, I'm starting to throw up and my hair is falling out. What, what on earth? Yeah, yeah. Other things start happening. Yes. And you're like, you have no idea what's, what's going on. But you whip out a Geiger or another radiological detector and it boop, pegs off the side. And you're like, whoa, 
we have a huge problem going on here. Do you see it? No. You have no idea that you're being shredded down to your molecular level. have no clue that that's even happening. To you, it just seems like everything's normal. Everything is normal. But that is just like a, that's a, another call of the Homer or a light and heavy argument. If here in this world, you can have, you know, a radiological radiation exposure that is deadly, then how much more is the one who created radiological elements? Who at his voice, things come into being and cease to come into being. Then being in that presence, that other. But we see that that one who created all things can also, with the incarnation of Yeshua, say, hey, I want to live among you. But I don't want to kill all of you in the process. Well, how do I do that? Mishkan, tabernacle. Yeshua, ultimate presence of God amongst mankind that is able to be here without killing everybody in the process to, you know, to the point where he's saying, hey, don't keep the little children from coming up to me. The ultimate in approachability. Yes, uh, Rose, uh, go ahead, please. I, I just wish to speak to uh, your word normal. <laughs> it is not normal. Yes, not normal. No, indeed. Uh, my husband and I were having a conversation this morning, and he said, he asked me the question, when did you hear about homosexuals? And I said, I didn't know, I didn't even know that word when I was a child. I didn't know what it was until I was like 16 or 17 years old. I didn't know all the stuff that is just thrown at you every, every day. All the commercials, all the, I mean, the commercials are even perverted. They're, they're filthy and they're dirty and they're wrong. Uh, just the little innuendos that they, that they spark at you all over the place. That is not normal. Uh, I don't remember, uh, as a, even as a young person, the stuff that is thrown at you today. I don't remember it uh, even in my youth. I don't, it, no, it's not normal. We are living, we're living in, we're living in a horrible time right now. Yeah. And but, the, but the point is, is that the children yes and people have lived like that before lot and sodom bad 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 situation so this is something that has happened before and you know we can we can go back and we can we can see like the we're going to get to it when we get into the last chapters of numbers and then you see also when you continue on into the books of Joshua, Judges, and going on and on and on. And you're like, how could people do stuff like that? But the issue is we see it in the world today. I mean, every time they are taking a poll on it, every successive generation, the confusion about who they are just grows and grows and grows, greater proportion of the population. If nothing turns around, we're going to go extinct within one or two generations because we have so confused the younger generations that they will just no longer procreate anymore whatsoever. It's, just, it's happened in Japan. We've seen that coming for at least 10 to 15 to 20 years already. And it's now starting to come on to shore here. But the point is, is that we see that this is something that has been a long time coming. It's been a long time coming. And if you can turn that younger generation, there sadly sometimes is that point, and only the creator knows, is that sometimes for some particular populations, it can only happen with a reset. And the one who makes life can also take life, and then also remake life. Again, it comes into the picture of, are we actually seeing the reality of things or not? See, we, we live, we die, we see people die around us, we see sicknesses come along, and we just think, this is the way 
the other glimpses that no, this is not the examples of that in as it talks about in scripture that in the how wonderfully that we are made and that is a whole discussion in and of itself but it gives us a small little window in that the world that we see right now is not how it was originally to be or set up to be it you know we all can maybe get involved with our computer programs and this and that and the other and they're wonderful when they work correctly but when they don't work correctly what happens you you uh yeah you hit the hit the reset if you're if you're hopeful but the point is is that if things work correctly then you can accomplish what you want to do when they don't work correctly then you cannot accomplish what you want to do so thus we see that with the younger generations that are coming along we just pray that the outpouring of the spirit is able to blow the trumpets just like we see here that the younger generations will hear and will come around before something more dramatic has to happen yes uh, alex go ahead uh, i had another little nugget from um polycarp i want to share you know, oh yes well we've all heard oh well you know the bible yeah there's actually a lot of the gospels are written a few hundred years after jesus is around you know they're pretty good well actually with polycarp he was uh studied under john yes. the apostle yeah he was who died in 99 mm -hmm. so and that was the beloved john mm -hmm. so take a nugget from it i mean uh, polycarp studied under the guy and he said the 14th in this son he mean met it and passover and uh and then they burned him alive when he was an old man at 86 because he wouldn't say you know come on hail caesar no you guys are atheists <laughs> that's i think that's what he said in the end no yeah. you're atheists my god's it so anyway we got a little pieces of truth that's mm -hmm. straight that's coming right down from the master indeed amen indeed all right, let's see. That brings us back around to where we were at at the outset. We were talking about kind of close things out here in Numbers chapter 11. And I actually roll things back just a wee little bit here. Um, Numbers chapter 10, verses 10, 11 through 36. So this is just after you get the instructions for the two trumpets. You know when to go, you know when to gather, you know when the leaders are supposed to gather, when these different signals are blown. So, all right, so you've got your signal. The signal corps has finally gotten its, its instructions. So they know how to communicate from the boss down to everybody to get them to move. So then now you're going to start moving out from the mountain. Then we get down to this passage here. Numbers chapter 10 verses 35 and 36 you know it's commonly 35 we read that right before we start we start our bible readings 36 we read that after we get done with our bible readings so one of these things that we see is that you can really put this into a, a sense where you could say this is the future of israel reborn this is Israel's future being born again. Because you see, as it goes on, and it says here, you know, if you just back up a little bit to starting in verse 33 of chapter 10, thus they set out from the mountain of the Lord, three days' journey, the, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days, to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Then it came about when the ark set out, Moshe would say, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee from before you. And when it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. So we see that in this particular thing, um, first, when you look at the Hebrew text, you'll notice that they usually mark this off usually with the the final letter noon which kind of looks like a or in reverse little crook and then straight down 
And it's at the beginning of these two verses and at the end of these two verses. And you've seen some people riff on this and say, well, this is like a separate book in and of itself. This is like the sixth book of the Torah, these two verses sitting right here. Uh, now, they didn't mean that literally, but they took that to mean that this was almost looking at a different reality than what you see play out. Because here, we've all read in the beginning part of Numbers, you're getting ready to go, you're organized, you count everybody, you get everybody with their notes of where they are and where they're supposed to be. Then you get ready to go. And then you see this little boop vignette that's there. Now, we've we seen in precursors to this, yes, when the cloud gets up, you go. And when the cloud stops, you stop. But look at the other things that are mentioned in this particular passage. When the ark set out, Samosha would say, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee from before you. We don't see that as starting in the next chapter and moving forward. We see, do you see the trust that that is indeed what happens? No, we're going to see in a few chapters the infamous experience with the 12 spies. And 10 of them said, uh-uh, can't do it. We go into land, walls too big, people too big. Uh, we're, we're, we're nothing. We're, there's no way we can do it. This is what, what that reality was supposed to be like, that they would trust. Hey, the one who took us out broke the back of a superpower of the time period, broke us out of that, humiliated all of the deities of Egypt, humiliated their, their army in the sea, shown that all of the powers of Canaan, where they were going, that the Baals, the Baals that would supposedly, we've talked about this when we uh, were back through Exodus 15, that in the Baal cycle, a well-known Canaanite document, and they found copies of this, is that one of the hallmarks of Baal, or one of the Baals, one of the lords, was that he was victorious over Yom, or the sea literally the sea god, the sea deity, that he basically was victorious only by working out a deal in a, you know, it's a goes long sort of thing, but trying to gain the power of the sea to fight back against his father who he was trying to usurp. So this is what the people of Canaan, including Jericho, were steeped in. So when the spies show up at Rahab's door, this is what she was steeped in with this picture of reality. Well, what had she heard about these folk who were coming up through the desert and now are on her doorstep? The Lord didn't need to work out a deal. He wasn't playing, you know, uh, the art of the deal here with the yam and the sea. No, he just said, open and it opened. It submitted. He said, open up, and it opened up. And closed back up, and it closed back up. And he bested all of the deities of Egypt there in the process. So Rahab, with trust, said, I'm going to side with the God of Israel. Because these gods of Canaan or nope, they're as messed up as we are. Yes, they're not really any sort of powerful deities at all. And one of the deities of the land of Ashtoreth or a fertility goddess, have you seen how many people are coming up through the desert? And they've multiplied when they were in Egypt, so much so that Egypt was scared of them and tried to wipe them out, throw the babies into the river. So whose fertility deity is really in charge here? Uh, you know, you can, you can do all kinds of things and offering your own children to whatever, but who's, who's actually producing offspring? Yeah. 
Yeah, 70 went in, millions came out. So thus, thus you can see that Rahab was able to see, oh, I know who I should trust in this. I know who I should trust. So you see those two spies who came back, you know, that's an incredible witness. So as we, we see also in this passage of this alternate reality, this is what reborn Israel was going to be like, that would trust that the Lord was able to take them into the land. Even though the walls were high, what? The Ruach blowing through those trumpets took down those walls. They could not stand up. That the Ruach blowing across the sea did what? Split it open and then buried an army in the midst of it. Armies, walls, that was no big deal for the one who could gather, the one who could blow and make things happen. So that's one of the the great witnesses that we have in this particular um, passage, that when we get on into Numbers chapter 11, and we see here that what we're talking about is really the issue of Asaph. What are you gathering to do? What is your gathering for? And you see the man who is the humblest man who has ever been on the planet. What was Moses able to do? And it mentions this specifically when the Lord's response in this particular passage. What was Moshe able to do that no one else could do? Talk face to face, mouth to mouth. And we see with the mountain. The mountain was like had quarantine zones up there. Pretty much nobody could come up even to the base of it. Not even keep the, keep the animals away from the mountain. That was the ultimate other zone was the mountain. Who went up the mountain? Moshe went up the mountain. Some were able to go up halfway, but then they couldn't go all the way up. But Moshe could go all the way up to the top of the mountain. So when you see this kind of humility, this wasn't just a you know, cowering person I mean, he faced up against all kinds of things throughout his life. The court of Pharaoh, yes, and also the Midians, the um, shepherds that he had to battle and out there in exile in Midian, and he faced up against all kinds of different people in the process. But who was he? What made him actually important the fact that he had that sort of close connection with god that he could speak with them face to face it should remind you of a particular passage every time at pesach time we read about it that yeshua got up from the table and he knew where he came from and he knew where he was going so then what? Put the towel around his waist, started washing the dirty feet of his students. The master was washing the feet of the students. So he didn't have to put on an, a, an appearance of what made him special. He knew exactly where he came from, where he was going. And Moshe knew exactly what made him special was that he had a close connection with the Lord and he trusted the Lord, trusted the Lord. We might remember some people like that, that Noah trusted the Lord, built the boat, and he was considered righteous in his generation. And we could read all kinds of stuff afterward and say, well, is he absolutely perfect and flawless? No, he had his fables and foibles just like, everybody else but what was credited to him as righteousness was that he trusted 
the Lord. That was credited to him as righteousness. And then we see specific... Yeah, building, building the ark was ridiculous in that kind of world, uh, in that kind of, you could say, climate. There was a big climate change that happened yeah. during his lifetime, yes. But what we see is that he trusted the Lord and that that was considered, you are righteous in your generation. And Avraham, he trusted the Lord. And then that was credited to him as righteousness. And you see the Apostle Paul riff on, riff on that and say, hey, that is what the example of, you could say, faith is and being brought into the family, gathered into the family of God, is that you trust the one who brings you. And then you see examples also, even with Lot, to a certain degree, he trusted, he was considered righteous wasn't enough to get to 10 people to save the city but he was considered righteous only by what trusting in the lord and you see it exemplified by what he did by those visitors who came in and he stuck his knuck out for them in a city that was violent violent and inhospitable and absolutely <laughs> is like our way or no way, and we will make you do what we want. And how dare you come in and tell us how we should be in our morals? I mean, who made you judge is what they told him. Yes. So, thus, when we see with this particular path out, it may look like a whole lot of different events that are woven together, but we can see that what Yeshua's description there in john chapter 6 about the bread the bread that came down from heaven the manna it is what the lord provides to you and you are just gathering it in having trust is scary because what and we always talk about it becomes oh i have trust issues well if you have trust issues what likely has happened to you You've probably encountered a lot of people who have been untrustworthy, trust breakers, faith breakers, unfaithful people that have uh, proverbially stabbed you in the back, done something too treacherous to you. So then what? Walls go up, walls go up, walls go up, higher and higher, thicker and thicker to keep out those who are going to hurt you. Yes. So... One of the things that we all face with trust is, you know, they, um, there is a passage that says, you know, let the right one in. And we also see the Apostle Paul talk about having discernment, being able to discern, or as you say in Leviticus as we've gone through, to be able to distinguish between what? Clean and unclean. That is a symbol of the filters that we have going on in there. And then we see like in Acts chapter 10, that in the realm of where God is, that what God has taken people, gathered people in from the world and collected them for himself and said, hey, these people are the people of God because they trust me. So you should trust them too as being people of God. Now, we all have to go through our own detox from the world, just like the decontamination that you have to do if you've been someplace and either gotten radiation or something else, uh, a biological agent or who knows what on you, that you have to go through a detox to clean off of you and clean out of you maybe the things that have come in that corrupt, that destroy. So that why? That you don't corrupt and destroy all of the people that you're around. But the one thing is that when you're gathered into the people of God, you're what? You're supposed to be all marching together, so to speak. Kind of like what we saw with the camps, each tribe, you go out, you follow the standard, and you follow after your tribe and after your leader going out. You know, not just heading off into this way, into that way, and, and everywhere else. Uh, 
I guess uh, we have a comment here from Alex. Yeah, kind of here and now. It's all here and now stuff. Going into the promised land. Yeah. He was like, it's us, me and you, God, and what do you need me to do? It was not, you're going into the land of milk. No, no, that was not it with Moses. A lot of this stuff is here and now. The daily manna and whatnot. And I don't know if you ever, someone tried to save you years ago because if they didn't save you, they were going to hell. And it was like, dude, if that's what you're doing here, try to save me so that, you know, because we're commanded to save you, otherwise I'm going to burn, right? That's, that's like, you know, you're living for you in the future and you're trying to help me now. It's, it doesn't make any sense. Well, so, you know, one should always be trying to at least help someone who may be walking off of a, of a cliff. Yeah, but for now. For now. Let's na- yeah. Let's but not- also for, you know, where that, where that road leads. It certainly eventually yes. is. I don't have that book in yes. hand. That's right. <laughs> that's right. But I know and, what and I'm so, supposed to be doing now. And, and so that's also why you see Yeshua say on the, on the corollary to that, the other side, that we must not condemn anybody to say, you know, you fool, which is another way to say you forsaken of God. We should never say that to anybody because they might be a Paul who is just not Paul yet. He's still a Saul, and he is not, his eyes, literally in Paul's case, have not been opened. So, yes. I was just thinking also, too, that um, in Nassau, we were learning about the Nazarite vow, right? About separating and uh, consecrating themselves, right? That purity and also being given the, yeah. I think that's all I want to say is that it ties in and you're right. It's not herky jerky, a little of this, it all threads in and it takes um, a leader, a teacher such as you and Tammy just to bring it all in together. But I, I was thinking when they were concentrating and um, this whole passage too, I kept remembering the Nazarite vow and how we talked about that as opposed to the Sota. Uh, bitter waters testing too yeah and that's you know one of the things we've talked about in years past is how the Nazarite vow uh in what is happening with the the nazir person taking this vow it's something that a common person could do not in the priesthood but in a sense it is like a quasi priesthood role that you're in in that particular time period when you're under that particular vow. Uh, Pamela, you have your hand up. Yes, I have about um, something you said, iniquities are remembered no more. I thought you said Jeremiah 41. But uh, I don't 30, know 31, yeah, 31 through 34, and that's specifically in verse 34. What, what chapter? Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah what? Jeremiah 31, 3 1. Jeremiah three? Yeah, 3 1. 31. 31, 31. 31, 31. Jeremiah 31. Verses, yeah, verses 31 through 34. That's the, the new covenant prophecy. Oh. Correct. Thank you. Yes. Great. Uh, and we have a comment here, and then we'll close things out. I'm talking about the noon. Yes. And on both ends of the verse. Yes. Kind of like a. And that's the only place in the scripture that that is done in the Hebrew. Isn't that true? Uh, I have to take a look at that, but um, that is a major break in a. They they usually have. uh, It's about. uh, She was asking about those final noons that are in there is to mark basically a paragraph break because usually you see a psalmic in there as basically just kind of like a a general, we would call it a paragraph break. Because like, and you see in ancient Hebrew texts, it's like all run together. And some of them, even the words are almost run together, where sometimes you'll have people will debate over how the words are divided because all the letters are like all together. 
So do you, do, you, did you say that it's rebirth, or is this right the new kingdom that's going to come in? Is that what we're looking well, at here? It's, it's just that you're, you're you're seeing that it was not fulfilled really in this first generation, and we see that specifically with the with the twelve spies. They went in. Ten of them said no. What what this particular these two verses talk about that the enemies will be scattered before the Lord when He rises. They didn't trust that. They said, no, the, we, we can't fight these people. They didn't remember what the Lord said. Hey, you know, rise up and let our, your enemies be scattered before you. But, but didn't, didn't the Lord scatter the enemies later on? I mean, yes, he did with for the Jericho second generation. AI, AI was a yep. disaster or whatever. Second, second generation, they went in. And it was, that was a part of the, you know, moving out of the people that were, uh, there previously so there's hope in that that we will that's that's why you see that uh, it talks about in the scripture about that first generation died in the desert because they ate the manna but they did not connect it with what um what they didn't as it says they didn't connect it with trust or faith they did not connect it with faith that this was a provision from heaven, but that wasn't good enough because I, one reason might be they couldn't control it. Because a part of trusting is, is you give over control of yourself in a certain particular area. You are not controlling over everything anymore. So that is, that is a, one of the, the challenges where, where people have issues with trust is that uh, there is some parts of your life where you were relinquishing some parts of control over, you know, not total control, depending on certain relationships you're in. Uh, yes, Larry, we have a comment over there. It's kind of a comment, really, on on when when Messiah was speaking to them about that he was the bread, and that it was certainly not a uh, campaign speech. <laughs> He wasn't looking to become more popular by no, that. No, it wasn't bred into the stands. Uh, that's, that's, that was uh, done I, I, I in Rome. Amazed, you know, they always throw. amazed by that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a passing references where some emperors would, would go around and throw loaves of bread up into the Colosseum stands to gain popularity among the people. So, yes. So it's a common tactic that's, that's been used throughout time where people, if they want to get people's support, they'll just give away stuff because you know, the more desperate people are, you know, the more that they'll be welcome to have the stuff. And then you see, even when you're not desperate, if you just give away goodies, I mean, who doesn't love goodies? You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at halel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Halel.info. Halel